Hey everyone, my name's Braden, and you're listening to A Questioning Faith, a podcast crafted to allow us all to ask hard questions about what we believe and how our beliefs shape us. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Remember to like and subscribe to all of our social media channels. The links will be in the show notes. All right, so here we are in the fourth episode of A Questioning Faith. And again, spending time with John Thomas Fuller, the author, John Thomas Fuller. Uh, and exploring one of the great, if we're going to do a questioning faith, we might as well just get the big one up there out of the way. Uh, And I suppose maybe not out of the way because um, we'll probably have to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. But why in the world does God let bad things happen, especially to good people? Why is there evil in the world? If God was going to create everything and call it good, why not just make it really good, like super good without any problems? And uh, and now that I've offered the question, John, give us the answer. Thank you. <laughs> there are several thoughts that come to my mind. Um, I think I'll start with... Lyme disease, because in 2013, I was bitten by a tick and I contracted Lyme disease. I did not know it, though, because I didn't get a rash. I had no external symptoms until one day, about a month later, I couldn't walk. And when I say I couldn't walk, I literally could not walk. I was visiting a friend 70 miles from home and I had to drive home. and it took me about 25 minutes to get out of my car. And I'm not saying that I couldn't open the door or whatever. I'm saying just to stand up out of the car because I was in that much pain, it took me 25 minutes to get my feet out the door and I managed to pull myself up with my arms in order to stand up. And I have never experienced that kind of debilitating pain, or I should say I had never up to that point. I was crippled to the point that when I was here at home, I crawled from room to room to room. And thank you, God, I have counter space so I could pull myself up when I needed to get food or to cook food or to make a cup of tea. And the short version of the story is, in retrospect, what God has given to me in terms of grace through the process of the illness is incomparable. The compassion that I thought I had prior to that was amplified by about a factor of a thousand because I actually was able to identify with people in a way that I could not have done before that. The demands of the illness took me in directions that I never expected. And to this day, now we're talking, approaching eight years later, I cannot maintain the kind of social life I previously had done 
I get exhausted and it's very, very humbling. So in terms of grace, you know, compassion and humility are huge. They're very, very huge. And it has allowed me to love so much more. And, you know, if that is what it took, I and I tell people all the time, I'm thankful to God for having given me Lyme disease. Because if nothing else, I like myself better. And that counts. Excellent. That is a great way to get the conversation started. Um, Braden and Liz, how has that question or has that question played a role in your life? I'm going to start with, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to ask John another question. You, you made a, a comparison between compassion and humility and or a, a side by side that these things coexist together and, and walk together really closely. And I think that's absolutely accurate. Because to me, that what is what is compassion? What does that look like? It is an, a willingness and openness to recognize the needs of others and then do something about it. And that humility is recognizing that need within yourself, but also coming to a place of when you can be both compassionate and humble. And we, I've been there before. Some days I'm there, some days I'm not. Some days I'm one, some days I'm the other. It's a flow, but when you can be both of those things, it's, it's when you are willing to give and you understand that you can give everything that you have, literally and figuratively, everything you have, because the universe is going to continue to give to you. And I, I don't know, I just, that is a, a mentality that I strive for, fall short of frequently, but I don't know. I don't know if that has any, like why suffering happens, but there's, to me, there's, there's always this process and this flow of if I do good, good will come. I don't know. I guess it's almost karma. It's karma basically is the concept that I'm drawing myself to. <laughs> so I want to, at the risk of putting words in both of your mouths, um, summarize, I'll summarize what I heard you were both saying in a way that brokenness, pain, perhaps evil, uh, may be necessary because Otherwise, we would miss out on the joy of serving, giving, pouring our lives out for those in need. Is that a, a way to summarize what you were saying? You know, it's beautiful on its own. I, I think it's a good summary, but it is a beautiful statement on its own. So, Braden, uh, you began by saying, I have a question for John. Was, was there something? The that question is, is more, I guess. Where do you see those two things drawing you to, or how do how do those things pull you closer to God? As I have matured, one of the things that is constantly 
being driven home is that when Jesus walked the earth, the human race was just living out its evil inclination. And that he had to be kind to all the people he was around. The man actually had to love all these people, even though they were living. Now, he called Peter directly Satan. And I think that's more because he was comfortable enough to call Peter Satan than anything. <laughs> but everybody on the planet, because if we are to believe the teaching, the Holy Spirit had not yet descended to all of us until Pentecost, right? And when it came at Pentecost, then, it, you know, uh, we all had that same access. But up to that point, and I think about how humble Jesus was. And we've, I remember we discussed this, that he did not lord his position over other people. And he actually had compassion for their suffering. That, to me is a huge statement. And so when I find myself not being humble, I just have to take a step back and say, okay, dude, you know, I spend a lot of my time in life praying that I remain humble all the time. Um, the compassion, I must admit, is coming more easily. And as I get older, the circumstances of my life or the things of the world are becoming less engaging and it does get easier with practice yeah, and I work in a clinic so I get lots of practice. So I uh, want to expand on a thought that you offer John and take a big part of what I do in either coaching or ministry is to reframe or offer a different perspective so not necessarily challenge a statement, but to say, oh, there might be another way to look at that. And the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, what I have experienced and what I sense Jesus did was proclaim a new vision. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's available to all of us right now. And that is what Luke says in his gospel, chapter 17, verse 21, I think. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, the kingdom of God is among you. The, that verb, among or within, can be translated either way, and, and they're both accurate. The kingdom of God is amongst us. Uh, right now, the four of us talking. The kingdom Amen. of God is within us. Amen. Uh, and... What I sense is, and we're in three different states. Yeah. We're in three different states, yeah. <laughs> but what I sense is that the Holy Spirit has always been available, always been flowing through us, that plants grow because they are vivified by the Holy Spirit. We grow, every human being alive, because we are vivified, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. But the course of the, the Hebrew Bible is... People closing their eyes to that reality 
God said, I want to tabernacle with you. I want to tent with you. I want to live with you. And people kept turning their back on God and walking away. You know, the kingdom of God from the very beginning was at hand, was amongst and within people. But they closed their eyes and they walked away. And I sense, uh, I believe that, Braden, you and I were talking about this yesterday. Black is not really black. It's just an absence of light. Mm -hmm. uh, hell is an absence of God. And God doesn't remove God's presence necessarily. Maybe God does sometimes. But we, as human beings, close God out, turn our back, walk away, shut mm -hmm. God out. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah as his mission statement in the Gospel of Luke, uh, stands up in front of his hometown crowd, and he offers his mission statement, according to Luke. And Jesus' mission statement, by the way, is different in each Gospel. Uh, but in Luke, it is, uh, the Holy Spirit is upon me. God has anointed me, the Spirit is upon me, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the oppressed free, proclaim release to the captives, and proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year that all debts are forgiven. Everything's forgiven. And by the way, that happened before the cross. Uh, just to throw a little bit of controversy into the conversation. But Jesus announces the year of Jubilee is here before the cross. Uh, opening the eyes of the blind, I think that is opening our eyes to the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think that plays a huge role in answering this question. Where is, where is, um, or why is there evil in the world? Well, because human beings have turned their back on God. May I jump in? Absolutely. You know, when you opened up the conversation, I stated that I had two responses. And the second response kind of ties into what you've just said. God wants a genuine relationship with human beings. And I have enough experience in this department and seen enough in the world that when somebody settles on a partner in an intimate relationship or even just a friendship, that's that's not even remotely flattering, and it's certainly not satisfying. God wants a genuine relationship, and I think that's why people are given the option, because he wants sincerity and authenticity. And I think that, you know, even in human relationships, those qualities, though they may not appear on the surface to be the most important, are extremely important. Mm. Your partner wants to know you love him or her mm -hmm. with sincerity and not just, you know, well, you were convenient and I happen to, you know, need to be with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah God, you're drawing in. What was that? Oh, yeah. Imagine how God feels when we say, God, my life sucks. You're con it would be very convenient for, you, for me to have you take care of my problems right now. But as soon as, as soon as you fix my problems, I really don't need you anymore. Uh, you know, and that happens to be the entire story of Joshua and Judges. Uh, I used to say, I used to, um, when I tell my little life story, I, I don't know, into my 30s, I'd say, oh, yeah, in my 20s, I kind of put God in my pocket. And that's how I would refer to it. It didn't come to me until we were having this conversation. But 
I'm going to keep God with me, but I'm going to, I'm going to be in charge, you know, and if I want to go to him and here's God, no, I'm Christian. I'm going to, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Did you have one of those tiny little pocket Bibles? No, I didn't because I, uh, I really liked a big, heavy Bible and I seemed to get one every year I graduated in Sunday school. I had two pocket Bibles. Cool. (laughs) Still has them. Yeah. They're around somewhere. Yeah, so that that pocket Bible or that pocket Jesus um, doesn't do us much good, does it? Mm-mm. No. More often than not, it's it's easier to use pocket Bible and pocket Jesus as the weapon instead of the reason. Oh, explain that. Take that deeper. I don't know. We've got gun culture in America. Gun culture has gone. We have the right to bear arms, and and I'm thankful for that. I grew up in Nebraska. I know about hunting. I know guns are not terrible. Our policies around guns, in my opinion, are terrible. We allow everything to flood out, but uh, help me. Okay. So if, I'm, I'm kind of seeing where you're going maybe is with the pocket Jesus. Pocket if Jesus. You can just, you can be a hypocrite and do. If everybody, not, if every, if everybody can, everybody can carry 20 pistols and everybody <laughs> can pull a pistol out and use that to solve whatever problem they want, whenever they want. Of course, the pistol's coming out first. It's not. Let me reason, let me talk, let me commune, let me love, let me understand. It's just let me fight. Let me Mm -hmm. kill. Let me wound. Let me maim. Okay, Braden, that is, I'm I'm not sure if you. I don't know how that even came out, but. Well, well, think about it this way. You just offered a stunning metaphor. And yes. That is the case. There are a lot of people walking around with guns because they think that's the easiest way to solve the problem. But my God, we go around with our, uh, with our not even concealed carry. We walk around with open carry weapons on our tongue all the time, right? Or our finger. Now social media makes it even easier. Mm-hmm. We, shoot, we shoot people down without even thinking Without even thinking, the first thought is, I'm going to tear you down and destroy you. Yeah. Oh, and there's, why did God allow evil? <laughs> did God make me say that? Did God make me type that? Why does God allow evil? I had a, a I was listening to something this morning that kind of gave me a little bit more perspective on this. And it's because God loves us. As much as we, that feels like such a paradoxical statement, God allows us, I don't, that's not even the right way. Like that doesn't, that framework of God allowing it for me doesn't even fit. It's God allows us to make choices. Again, and I think Eric, that's kind of where you were going too, that we can turn away from God. We can run the opposite direction or we can try to for a while. And it's going to go the way that that's going to go. But 
eventually going down that path will lead to some sort of death, despair, destruction, something, whether it's a physical death, a a spiritual death or something. But if I'm honest, of all those times that I've had in my life where I've had either a physical death happen or a spiritual death happen or any sort of death grieving kind of moment, those are the moments that I grow. Mm. Those are the moments that end up shaping me as a person and shaping my theology and shaping my spirituality or whatever word you want to associate with that the most. And so if it weren't for the manure being trampled into the ground, it would just stay a pile of manure on the on the top of the ground. It doesn't actually become fertilizer until it gets trampled and gets rained on. It gets turned over and over and over and then broken down into its teeny tiniest little teeny tiny bits. And then it finally becomes the bare mineral nutrients that the plant needs to be sucked up and create more life. So what you just described, Braden, is the eighth stop in the 42 stage journey in God's book and John's book and God's book in John's book. (laughs) I'd go as far as to say it's God's book too. Yeah. I I think, (laughs) I think John would also actually John (laughs) has said as much um, that this is inspired writing. Um, What I, what I heard you saying, Braden, in a way is what John said is an awareness of the Holy spirit in our lives shaping us mm-hmm. taking the taking the crap and turning it into food uh so john writes page 41 after several weeks i was infused with the holy spirit to say that i was convicted is an understatement to say i was exposed would be inadequate to describe the absolute all-encompassing invasion of my whole person with that force on my path i had focused on reforming my conduct But I had overlooked the more meaningful matters. My sexual indiscretions were nothing in comparison to the ugliness of my heart and my mouth. Up till that time, I had found humor in the suffering of others. All the disgust over the behaviors of others, their appearance, their smell. Never had I felt so small. So very, very small. And of course, there was disdain for the human beings for their inability to control their passions, appetites, alcohol consumption, and anger. I would say that I was humiliated, but there was no practical advantage in indulging in that feeling, nor self-hatred, nor regret. It was way too late for that. My slate was blemished. I had made my bed. It was in the depths of the hell of my own making, and there, Oh, I was in the depths of the hell of my own making, and there was only one way out. I had to change my mind and adjust my attitude. That, by the way, that last sentence is the definition of metanoia, which is part of Jesus's mission statement in Mark's gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Metanoia and enter the kingdom. Change your minds, adjust your attitudes, and enter the kingdom of God. And the the common translation of metanoia is? Repent. 
and and repent just doesn't even really get there, does it? Not even. I, I was going to ask John if that metanoia that I I knew that I had. I'm hearing that that's an invitation to death to your old self and a recognition of that. Is that kind of. I literally had to unlearn American culture as much as I was then living it. So um, how would I describe it? Um, A secular American culture. My behaviors were completely consistent with everything I saw around me and that was being practiced around me, which is not to cast blame. But I recognized that I literally had to start from scratch and sort it out. And I had to learn what it means to walk with God, because that was not even an element of my mental construct. It it had no place. In fact, I was one of those people who was, um, how would I even say this? You know, I would bait the Christian people that I met to fall in one way or another. And it's not something that I have ever shared with anybody, but it is to my heart, one of the most regrettable things I have ever done. Um, And Thankfully, a lot of those people are a whole lot stronger than I was evil, if you will. And that, uh, I'm going to share something that might, John probably would never tell anybody anyways, but John is unbelievably intelligent, um, genius level. So baiting people in at that point in time was probably not too difficult, (laughs) entertaining, you don't even want to know. You really don't even want to know. So how we use their gifts, how we use that intelligence, that, uh, that uh, every gift, mental, physical, whatever, uh, it takes wisdom to learn how to use those gifts properly. And what we've been talking through today is learning wisdom. John, you mentioned a few minutes ago, maturity. As I matured, uh, I think another way of defining maturity would be earning wisdom or receiving the gift of wisdom. Uh, And it might not feel like a gift when um, you're dealing with all of the pain that you've caused because you kept Jesus in your pocket instead of in your heart. but that's the only way we learn, apparently. Most of us, God knows. <laughs> I have had to work really hard at uh, messing up things so that I could get a little bit of wisdom. So I've been thinking about kind of societal caricatures of when we say like wisdom, who, who do we like, who do we image in our, what, what image comes to mind? Of course, it's somebody that looks like John, an older guy with some grays and, <laughs> and a beard. And you've been you've been through the like you've been through some stuff. We can visibly see that physically on your body just because mm. of the amount of years that you've gone around the sun. 
My granny used to say, my question, I guess, is does that wisdom only come with age and gray hair? Or do we sell children short by discounting their experiences and their wisdom and how quickly they may be able to gain that wisdom in a more knowledgeable world? I'm going to answer that with a question I posed to a friend of mine who is substantially younger than me. And I said to him when he asked me, because uh, he had at that point just begun his path. And he says, so do you think I can be as wise as you? And I said, let me ask you a question. If a two-year-old asked you that question, what would you say? Because you have you know, 20 plus years of experience on him. And he looked at me and said, oh, yeah. You know, what Eric said earlier is that it takes life experience. So I would say a child definitely has and may actually be better equipped than most adults to be wise. It takes application to actually become truly wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like, and then what you had referred to earlier, John, was you had to unlearn so many things. They're so young. They haven't put all of these other life experiences in place. So Eric and I did a really interesting word study. I forget the passage Eric will be able to tell you in which um, we were looking at what is an unfortunate translation of the King James Version in that it describes the serpent as wise. And so I did a word study of the actual Hebrew, and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about here at all. The Hebrew word is closer to shrewd, but it, um, it is interesting in that the word that actually is used when was that Paul referring to that? Yeah, let, uh, let me uh, let me set it up for you, John. Because you're right, this this plays perfectly into our conversation. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, Brayden and Liz, you'll remember the sermon. Uh, I used the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent whispering to Eve, <laughs> and um, the author of that story writes that the serpent was clever. And and then a few verses later, we were told that Eve saw that the fruit was good for making people wise. And she wanted to become just like God. She wanted to be wise like God. Uh, and I, I thought that that was a really intriguing dichotomy. The serpent's clever. Eve wants to be wise. And so John and I were, were talking through that. And I said, Oh, you know, you know, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two and tells them to be uh, as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And I said, I wonder what that Greek word actually is. We didn't have I didn't have a Bible in front of me. And and uh, but John, being the linguist that he is, pulls out the original Greek and (laughs) then he goes into uh, he goes into his vast library of of lexicons and looked up um, all of the various meanings of that Greek word. And really it doesn't mean wisdom at all. It's a poor translation. 
And it's one of those trans, it's, so go ahead, John, what was, uh, what were the, uh, the shrewd, clever? Well, let me, let me go through here because I've got the entire text on my phone. In Matthew 10, the Coptic, Matthew 10, 16, the Coptic version is be learned as serpents. Um, the Syriac, Syriac has shrewd and crafty. Uh, in Jerome's translation from the fourth century, uh, the same thing. And of course, uh, in my in my um, current Bible that I'm reading right now, it uses the translation "shrewd." Um, anyway, I was going to go in there, uh, and this applies to our discussion about the kids. The one thing children tend not to have is discernment. Um, you know, they're receptive to almost anything that comes their way. Kids have a discernment with protecting themselves, but um, we all know how easily one can, you know, how, how easily a child's peers can lead him away or her away to do something that, you know, um, wisdom and discernment would dictate would not be a good idea. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, also takes us into biblical interpretation territory and a, a subject that I know, Braden, this is very dear to your heart, that uh, the creation story doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins yep. in Genesis when, 1 when we are told that we are good. We are very good. So... Uh, about the year, uh, probably about 150, the idea of human beings falling, uh, having a fall. Adam and Eve were viewed as literal people. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think it's poetry. Uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't incredible truth in the poem. Uh, the uh, uh, Paul used the metaphor of Adam's fall to compare Adam to Jesus. And that began this whole theological trend of people saying there was a fall and all human beings are stained from that fall. Uh, there's another way to read that story, that Adam and Eve were children. They didn't have discernment. They didn't have wisdom. And you can't get wisdom instantly. You can't press the button, take the fruit, and magically get wisdom. You got to go through some manure to learn discernment, to learn wisdom. Um, and I think wisdom is a gift, uh, but it's a gift that's hard-earned. I think it's interesting. I'm glad that we are making all of these distinctions between these words that, for me, in the... I don't know. In the way that these words have been used for me, they've always been pretty interchangeable. Being wise, being discerning, being, but really they, they all, and it's important for us and it's a good spiritual practice just to take each individual thing and examine it and everything like that. And I, that's another thing that I've kind of been having happen a lot is, and I've been invited to take a, a, a more dissected look at things. 
and really kind of examine them. And so being able to sit down and examine what does it mean to be wise? And then to hear these other words like wisdom comes through discernment. It comes through experience. It comes through these things. And, and it kind of, it, it brings me back to why does suffering happen? Why does God, why does it happen in the first place? Well, because that's what we have to, what we have to go through. If we, ha if we have no darkness to compare lightness to, there's no way to say this is light, this is dark. If we have no good to compare evil to, or evil to compare good to, there's no real way to discern which is which. And so, again, it's, it's these experiences. The gift that we are given is that we experience. You know, what, what comes to my mind as you are talking is kind of fundamental to answering why did Jesus have to be crucified? And, you know, at the time of Jesus' life, the Jewish mystics had let's just call it a construct, a mental construct, that on the second day when God withdrew sufficiently from his creation so as not to annihilate it by his very being, he knew that it would allow for the potential for evil to come in, not the actual fact. God did not create it, but he knew that the potential was there. And it would develop into what is called the evil inclination. And, you know, the, this is a very early construct in Judaism because what happened in the flood? Well, all the people were wiped out because they were, you know, living out their evil inclinations. All the inclinations of mankind were, was evil. And so if we go back to first century or so Judaism, we have this belief that because the nature of evil and the nature of God are incompatible, period. Evil cannot exist in God, end of statement, which means that it takes a being of that mixed nature to actually overcome the evil inclination. And I think that is actually what our lives are about. It's not going out there and, you know, that's up to Michael to, you know, take care of Satan, right? That's what it says there. But we have to take care of our evil inclinations. That's the battle that we face every single moment of every single day. And that's where I believe the real victory is won. So, like, if we look at your example with 20 guns, which I thoroughly love, uh, you know, the only thing that stops a person from using those guns at any given moment is whether or not his good inclination can overcome the evil inclination in his heart. Mm -hmm. that, that is actually the point where, you know, God's will is really powerful. And I think that, you know, because of uh, popular media and so on, people fail to recognize that that is actually where the battle is. Uh, so I'm gonna offer something up that's going to be very offensive to some people. 
but that discernment is so apparent in society right now, or the lack of discernment. Uh, I've got good friends that are serious Q, uh, QAnon advocates. And there's nothing I can say that would help them see the irrationality of their belief system. Um, we are given the opportunity to discern every day. And these are people who call themselves Christian, uh, you know, that they've discerned. Um, oh, but if we are to follow, if we would follow the logical steps of, of actions and behaviors and see what the outcomes would be, uh, you know, the logical steps of attacking, of fighting, uh, it seems to be drifting us far away from the, the good inclination. Um, you know, the, the logical steps that everything is a conspiracy. My goodness. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to give our politicians that kind of credit. I'm not going to give our business leaders that kind of credit. There's no way that the self-centered politicians and, and business leaders that are implicated in these conspiracies would ever have the ability to collude at, at the level that QAnon believes they could collude and keep it secret. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they keep their affairs secret. <laughs> oh. But it's, I, part of that though, still comes back to human nature that, and this is where sometimes even the church gets in trouble. There's always got to be a boogeyman in the sky pulling the strings, making it happen. And if that boogeyman doesn't like you, then that's why God makes everything suffer for you. Because that God doesn't like you. That, pu that puppet master doesn't like you. Also, oh, Braden, you just pulled it all together, like tying a shoe. That was beautiful. That conspiracy, the conspiracy theories that, uh, that we believe exist in government, oh my God. Goodness, those conspiracy theories are rife in Christianity. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and maybe the ultimate conspiracy theory is uh, substitutionary atonement. That uh, the, the devil somehow had one over on God, and God had to sacrifice Jesus in order to pay the devil. You know, that, <laughs> we follow the logic of that. It doesn't go very far, but boy, there's a, that's just driven... Oh, it's just destroyed so many lives, and, and uh, it's made Christianity such an offensive faith for so many people. And that is so, so, so based in Genesis 3. Right, right. It is so based in we're never good enough. We've, we're fallen, depraved, terrible piles of shit instead of sacred clods of stardust. May I just throw out that it is in the interpretations of Genesis 3 as opposed in the actual text. And that's an entire other discussion, yeah. but it's, it's always the interpretations. It's by allowing our story, the story that is told about us and then, and then uh, taking on that story for ourselves, allowing our story to start in Genesis 3 instead of letting our 
believing and trusting and knowing that our story starts in Genesis 1, where God says everything's good. We're invited to be gardeners right off the bat. We're, in we're invited to be discerning between what's a weed and what's a good plant, what's something that we want to keep and what's something that we don't want to keep, what are good thoughts and bad thoughts. We're invited into the mess right off the bat. I have a very dear friend who strived within Christianity very, very hard to be quote unquote holy. And she so thoroughly internalized the, uh, let's say, uh, the fall of man and the inherent evil nature that she believed that Satan hated her constantly. And it was a horror to actually watch her struggle conceptually with that. And it was what was being taught in the church. And she was told by people, well, all these bad things are happening to you because Satan hates you. And it's like, or God hates you even worse. You know, the, uh, the sorrow that that woman suffered for a very long time is, to my way of thinking, tragic, beyond tragic. Mm -hmm. John, there's another story that you've told me a couple of times over the years, and it's one that I've used multiple times. Uh, in sermons and in conversations and in coaching people. Um, I would, I'm going to put a pause on that because I would like to explore uh, evil uh, demonic forces and that kind of thing. But I think that that's a huge conversation and it might be for a different day um, because we could spend a lot of time, probably episodes on that. But, uh, <laughs> but, the conversation that you had, John, with this woman was uh, she was always so negative. And uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about? You told her she was worshiping Satan. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, well, do you want me to repeat that story? Yeah, yeah. One of my dearest friends, and she is one of the little stories in the book. Um, she was the woman whose hand was burned by the oil in that story. And she was a really beautiful woman, but she went to a really, um, I would say kind of almost to the point of being a cultish Christian church. And they spent 90% of the time talking about all the evil that was out there and all the stuff Satan was doing. And she would call me and she would tell me, well, Satan's doing this and I'm seeing all this and the kids are doing that and Satan's doing that. And I said to her, okay, I said, I'm done talking about Satan. I'm tired of hearing about Satan. I am in my life trying to learn about God. And I said, if you don't want to talk about God, please don't share your stories with me because I don't know anything about Satan. And I actually don't want to know anything about Satan. That's God's business. Let's talk about God just to kind of redirect the, you know, focus of our discussions. Yeah. So, and so what, what I remember John saying at the time was uh, you're looking for, you're not looking for God in the world. You're looking for Satan in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the problem. So many people have uh, that's the problem of our news media. That's the, you know, that's the problem of society. Uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the, 
there, we focus on negative, negative, negative. Now, if you're focusing on negative all the time, what kind of po- what kind of attitude are you going to have? <laughs> or what kind of what kind of positivity or joy are you going to see if you're just stuck in that mindset already? Yeah, if you're angry all the time, if everything makes you angry, I think you're worshiping Satan. I'll just be really blunt. You aren't looking for the good in the world. You aren't looking for the God in the world. Right. Um, and I know, John, you and I have talked about this. You and I both have a horrific anger problem. <laughs> mine's mine's much better in the last 10 years. And I imagine yours is a whole lot better than when you were in your 20s. Uh, but do you want to expand on that at all? About my anger? Well, no, the the idea that if if we if we allow anger to control us, we're worshiping the evil in the world instead of focusing on the good in the world. You know, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are tending at least in a direction. Our thoughts are probably the most powerful. And if we spend our time directing them toward negativity, how can our words and our deeds be anything but? And we are either we are either acting to bring the kingdom to earth, and we each have the power, as we are right now, to bring the kingdom to earth in our lives, in whatever fashion that might uh, appear, or we are not. There is no middle ground, and we do all, let's face it, Getting around and bitching at each other can be a lot of fun, but the bottom line is what we are in every moment striving for, I hope, is to make the world a better place. There is a, um, probably about 10, 15 minutes, um, will be around an hour. So, um, for the next 10, 15 minutes, I'd like to explore uh, something that many people, John, would say is fantasy. Uh, no way this could ever have happened, like <laughs> so much of your book. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, can I just interject something? Yes, please. On that note, it is absolutely irrelevant, in fact. If people believe the stories to be true or if they do not, because the book is a method, it is a focus, it is an intention. And whether or not somebody gets something out of it determines if it were successful. You know me well enough to know whether those stories are true. The people who are reading the book who know me well enough know that the stories are true. And in time, I don't know that God necessarily needs corroboration, but in time, the characters in those stories are going to start speaking out. And, you know, for the uh, skeptics, you know, just, I suppose, you know, pay attention. But it is irrelevant if they are true or if they are false what is true is that it is a path mm-hmm. and that's all i was intending to share well thank you and um i realize that we've talked about your book we haven't named it 
And these will be <laughs> these book will be in the sermon or in the sermon notes in the podcast notes. But enter into my rest: the mysteries of living and dying revealed by John Thomas Fuller, uh, illustrations by Lori Doberstein. Uh, the um, but where I wanted to go with this, and thank you for that clarification, John. Uh, where I wanted to go with this is part of the 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 answer to pain the answer to evil the answer to brokenness is we see such a limited perspective and your book john opens up vision if we're willing to go into these stories and experience them as uh the veil between the dimensions or the veil between um heaven and earth parting in a way. Uh, then we we come back to where we began with humble. Wow, there is so much I don't know. Uh, one of those stories, there's so much I don't know. If, if I could accept that if I'm in a very difficult situation, um, death of a loved one, uh, cancer, some kind of illness, extreme pain, you know, whatever. Uh, I can't believe this is happening to me. Well, that's only one aspect of the vastness of everything that is. It's only one perspective we see. And we don't see what the divine is up to all around us. But John, you give us a picture of what might be happening all around us at any particular point in time on the 13th stop of the 42 stage journey. Once again, there I was in my bed, feverish, trembling, and as good as dead. Uh, before I go on, um, what were you suffering from? Malnutrition, among other things. I weighed at that time probably 145 pounds maximum. Um, at that time of my life, I was very, very ill, and I weighed as little as 135 pounds. Then uh, I was striving to earn, an, earn a living, and at that time in my life, I was getting about one meal a day if I were lucky. It turns out that the story you are describing um, in all probability, actually describes two heart attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, I realized when I was writing the book that, oh my God, and I didn't recognize this earlier, but the symptoms that I describe and experience are in fact identical with people I know who've had heart attacks. And so I think there was just an overall malaise. Suddenly there arose a warm, roaring flood of energy from below. I knew that I would soon be propelled from my body. So I faced east, assumed the correct posture for meditation and stilled my mind. It's not that I had fear, I didn't, but I've always felt it helps to know where I'm going when I set out on a journey. <laughs> a perfect example, John, of whether this, <laughs> you wanna believe this is true or not, the wisdom, right? Uh, I've been out of my body often enough, but this time it was different. I would have given, I, I would be given volitional control. 
So I resolved to set a destination in my mind and go there. I controlled my breath, focused my attention on a point behind my eyebrows and waited. It did not take long. With the force of a rocket blasting off, I entered into the spirit world. As planned, I went straight up to the place I had seen from afar in meditation. The circle of beings continually sending intercessory prayer to all humanity. It was like a beautiful ring of glorious white light. I joined that prayer circle, holding hands with Jesus on my left and another soul on my right. All of us there were humanoid beings of pristine white with a lining of radiant golden light. From each of our hearts flowed a rainbow directed at the earth. I was only allowed to be there for a brief moment before I was thrust forcibly back in my body. And now, the understatement of all time, John writes, it was a very exhilarating experience. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'm going to give you for that one. Here's this amazing imagery. And man, that was really cool. No. There are several things uh, that I would like to share with you in with the world in response to this. And the first thing that comes to mind when you began this question, when you referred to the book as God's book in the beginning, it really is God's book. The degree to which so many of the words that are on the paper are God's words is best explained by the experience of a friend of mine while reading the book. And she had the book open in front of her and light was shining out of the pages at her. That was her experience of reading the book. So it is alive. It is interactive. And there is so much not in the book that I could have shared, and I, you know, selecting the stories was a really hard part because, like, well, what is about you know, I had so many things. By that time, I had experienced things like teleportation. I had experienced, you know, the vision of the light. I had experienced. God helped me to learn how to deal with my gifts, and when you're as sensitive as I am. At that time when that event happened, I remember one night before going to bed, I was just kind of sitting there with my eyes closed, trying to get silent. I actually picked up a radio station and I was able to listen to the radio with nothing but my head. And I could change channels just by turning my head. Now, I don't have any metal in my mouth, so it wasn't like I was, you know, somehow, you know, a... uh, receiver for the signal metal um that's just how my life has been and i try because magic as it were is not the crux of the spiritual life as jesus says you know seek first the kingdom of god and all this other stuff will be given to you and as you know if you've seen my facebook page On my gravestone, I quote Matthew, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's the the one thing I would say to people. You want to know God, boom, seek him. You want to have the ability to heal somebody by touch, seek the kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that that may sound like I'm trivializing it, but it's not. 
uh, I'm trying, as I said in the end of the book, I'm trying to downplay the importance of those miracles. They are not my miracles, certainly. And the real miracles are like when Liz says she wanted to raise children. The real miracles are when Braden's 20 gun toting man doesn't actually kill somebody. Um, the real miracles are that we have a beautiful sunny day and the flowers are blooming. You know, people forget to see God in the world because God is very present. I was trying to get people's attention by telling those stories. And I didn't need to tell any of them, but I don't know, you know, if you were to read Chicken Soup for the Soul, like volume 89, would that work? I don't know. You know, this is just the approach that we went with. And so many, so many uh, of your stories and then people that are close to you and their stories and then Braden and I trying to get our stories out there. What a beautiful thing to share something. And that's so, I don't know, it comes out of those corners in your soul, some of these things. And I don't think I've reached down there yet and exposed those, but I know, scares me, but I know that that, that, that corner, that little scrape we got to get out, it, it's going to do something big. It's in myself. I think that's how we heal inside out because the love starts here. If we're going to love other people, we have to love here. You have to, you know, you got to heal. You got to love yourself. So you fill those empty spots with love. In regard to what you just said, Liz, and it is really relevant and very beautiful. I treated all of my life as God's way of cultivating me and sanctifying me. I never considered going public with any of the stories because at that time, even though I had been told to write the book, I didn't think the book was going to be about my personal sanctification or my personal purification of my heart. Never occurred to me once. I wasn't going to talk about myself to anybody. I was a monk. I didn't talk. End of statement. But when I had that most recent near-death experience, I, um, I, I was given a mission and it became very, very, very clear that I was given a mission. And I knew the third section of the book pretty well because that was in my earliest drafts. I didn't know what was going to go into the first two sections and um, of course, the stories are all there. There are hundreds of more stories that I could share as well. And someone said to me, well, you need to write a second book. It's like, let God make that decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. But yeah. it, I had not intended to share any of that. This really, to me, sounds like seeking the kingdom. Like that. that is... That's what this conversation is about. That's what the last several of these conversations has, have been about. It's we're seeking, we're asking questions. We're not saying that the kingdom doesn't exist. We're not saying that 
John, your experiences didn't happen because I don't have scientific physical proof that they come on. Isn't God bigger than that? I believe in a bigger God than that, that I have to have scientific, physical, hard evidence for. Because you know what? There's some stuff in my life that has happened that I just flat out, I, I got no proof that it happened or why it happened or that it'll happen again or that I could. I don't know how or why. I don't really care. It's kind of like. I just care that it happened. And. So do I, how do I know that God exists? Because I've experienced God. And how do I know that God is around in this community? Because I've experienced God in this community. And so as we're building this thing, building an audience, building a community around this podcast, around the work that we're doing in the churches, around the work that you're doing with your book, all these different things. And historically, even I'll, I'll give the church historic credit by saying, it's always been a, a seek, a searching for the kingdom. And, and I think there's enough people on the planet now that are coming to that realization that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is what you make it. If you look for good, you will see good. If you look for God, you will see God. If you look for evil, you will see evil. If you look for Satan, you'll see Satan. You know, Braden, you said something which I really appreciate and respect, and that is you've had experiences that are completely and utterly unexplainable and yet you believe and one of the reasons i wrote chapter 14 is because so many people doubt their experience and that becomes an obstacle whereas you believe and look at you experience over and over and over and it confirms your you know evolving understanding of your relationship with God. And I think that's incredibly important. So chapter 14 is called trust your own experience. And uh, we'll finish. Uh, I think we you know, will wrap this one up, but the trusting experience has been one of the, uh, the, the evangelical church has despised that word experience because you can't prove it. Um, Richard Rohr says that the theology of the Catholic church at its best is a tricycle with three wheels, experience, tradition, and reason. Um, no, 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 I'm sorry. Experience, tradition, and scripture. And that experience drives the vehicle. Um, there, there are, there, oh, we're seeing it in the Methodist church. The Methodist church is going to split. And one group that says experience is not allowed is the Wesley Covenant Association. And they're going to start their own denomination in part because they hate the idea of experience. And in the Wesleyan tradition, we do theology with four lenses, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Uh, what a shame that so many people don't trust their experience. Don't trust. I mean, if, if God is here, we are experiencing God. And what a shame for people who don't trust the experience of God in their lives. 
So I think the message for today is please trust your experience of God. Be looking for God. Uh, be rejoicing at the experiences of God. And uh, if you want to be part of a community in which we are learning to experience God, well, welcome. <laughs> there's uh, there's five of us, or four of us, I can't count. There's four of us here today. Uh, share this podcast with your friends. Jesus, Jesus is with us, okay? Christ is with us. Uh, yeah, so share this podcast with your friends and let's build a community in which God is at the center and the experience of God is something to be rejoicing over, not to, something to be afraid of. And All let's right. ask questions. Let's, let's ask questions. Let's ask questions. Why not? Yeah. yeah. Let's not be afraid of, of the answers either. No, so, yeah. Well, thank you all for uh, what has been another fabulous conversation, another, I hope, to be well-received and exciting podcast for those who listen. And until next time, God bless you and God bless all of our listeners. May, may you all experience Christ in a, uh, in a, or let's say this, may you all experience the Spirit of God in a powerful way. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Love you too. Adios. Till next time. Have a great day, guys. Bye. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to rate, review, follow, and like us from wherever you might be listening. On our next episode, we continue the journey with John as we discuss the question, who is Jesus to you? As well as sharing some of the stories of our encounters with Jesus. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time on A Questioning Faith.